Welcome to another edition of This Week in Digital Trust, 11M's regular conversation about all things tech policy, privacy, and cybersecurity. I'm Arj, I'm joining you again from the lands of the Awabakal people, and I'm joined again by Jordan. Hey Arj, I'm on Wurundjeri country, and I'm looking forward to a chat about budgets today. We've had a very exciting week. You know, I feel like budget time is Christmas for political tragics. Do you get into it? Yeah, I was going to say it's grand final day for accountants, but that works too. (laughs) Do I get into it? Um, You know what? There was a time, I think it was probably closer to high school when I was having to study economics for year 11 or 12, where budget night was a really big deal. And you know, had to make sure I was in front of the TV at 7.30. Appointment television, yeah. It was, it was. And it's funny because my mum the other day said, did you watch the budget? And I was like, why are you asking me with such enthusiasm? And she said, because you would never miss it. And I was like, yeah, those days are gone. Uh, I don't watch it so religiously. The other thing I think that's different is, at least in my memory back then, was that it was a lot more contained in terms of what was going to be in the budget. So there was a real sense of suspense. You were sitting down and you thought you were going to get all of these big announcements and now they just drop it out and leak it out for like the whole of the week so there's no surprises you pretty much know what's in the budget well before they uh, get up and speak to it i wonder if that's also a product of like there's a lot fewer people who are like sitting down on budget night to watch that live i don't do that but i listen to a whole bunch of current affairs newsy political type podcasts and every single one of them has been you know all week dismantling the budget and what does it mean for who and why and so on. Is there someone you read in particular? I really like The Party Room. Patricia Carvelis and Fran Kelly, who are just great chat kind of podcast about the politics of it all. So they're, they're always super interesting. You know, I always look out for Ross Gittin's take in the nine newspapers. He's still going. He was giving his take back when I was in high school. So <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> it's just some consistency there to get his view. Amazing. Lifelog reader. Well, it must be good if you've been sticking with him for decades. Yeah, well, I, you know, it's it's familiar. But uh, there's probably some confirmation bias here, but it feels like now budgets have things to say about our kind of area of operation as well, our industry, this whole area of creating a more trusting online digital environment across the spectrum of privacy, cyber, e-safety, scams. There's now things to, to be said in a budget. I don't know that You know, that would have been the case back when I was listening to the budget as a high school student. That would be a super interesting little project, right? Go back through budget announceables, budget papers, and see how much of it's, um, you know, privacy, cybersecurity, you know, what gets mentioned, how many announcements. Because I think that's very true. But I also think that probably rightly, a lot of the cyber and privacy announcements get buried in the budget measures that affect much broader audiences, right? Like cost of living and allowances and uh, job seeker and payments and all of that kind of, and tax stuff. Like they're the mainstream topics. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode with you is like to have a bit of a focused work through of like what's in it for privacy and cyber and what some of these announcements mean. Let's get into it. We'll start with privacy. There were some fairly significant announcements On the privacy front in the budget, the first one kind of leaked out a few days before the budget, which was that the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner was going to be restored to this three commissioner model. So this was the way it was, but it hasn't been that way for some time. But essentially, we're going to have the Australian Information Commissioner as sort of the agency head, but then we're going to have a dedicated privacy commissioner and a dedicated freedom of information commissioner. There was some extra funding specifically around privacy in the budget. The OAIC is 
going to receive an extra $17.8 million in 23-24. That's specifically for privacy. And over four years, the OAIC will receive just over $44 million, again, specifically for privacy activities. Pretty notable that it's very much dedicated to privacy and also that the funding, you know, for 23-24 in particular, that like extra 17 million takes it up to 47 million for 23-24, which is quite a large, large amount. If you look at annual funding for the OAIC over recent years and, and even previous budgets kind of forecast out to the future, there's nothing really getting up towards that sort of 50 million mark. So it's a big jump. It's a huge jump. Last financial year, OAIC spent 33 million. Um, the year before, 21-22, was 29. The year before that, 2021, was 24 million. Like a $17 million injection is more than half of budgets from previous years. There was also a couple other OAIC affecting announcements. There's $9.2 million that's allocated over two years uh, to continue to regulate privacy aspects of the consumer data right, my health record and digital identity. So on the back of that $47 million roughly budget for the next financial year, OAIC's staffing is projected to increase from 145 to 192 people next financial year. So yeah, huge increase to OAIC's budget, something like 50% from last year. Good news. I already said it, but I think that specific increase in the funding stream specifically carved out for privacy, that 45 million odd over four years, I think is really important. And I think it, um, well, I mean, it was interesting to see the OAIC's kind of statement on it. They sort of said it reflects the work that corresponds to the increased complexity, scale, and impact of the breaches, particularly recent large-scale breaches. So they're sort of basically saying, look, Optus, Medibank, Latitude show that we've got like a lot of work to do around investigation and probably future enforcement. Um, so I think that's good. I think the open question for me is, does this already account for the extra work they're going to have to do enforcing a new regime like so the privacy act review lands there's you know much more stringent requirements there's a lot of change work that the oaic has to do to get across having to administer and enforce the scheme does this account for that or not yeah the the budget papers certainly don't mention that right there's a bit of money for the attorney general's department to progress the review but there's no money earmarked for oaic or attorney generals to actually implement the new privacy regime so i would be expecting kind of dedicated cash in future budgets for that i really think that the government had no real alternative to upping the oaic's funding it was super interesting throughout the Privacy Act review process, almost unanimously across industry, pro-privacy, anti-privacy, almost unanimously submissions to the Privacy Act review said the OAIC was desperately underfunded in privacy and really needed more resources. And that came from, you know, the privacy advocates, the consultants and industry like ourselves. It also came from, you know, the big business folks who were often, or small business folks as well, big tech companies who were often anti-stronger privacy regulation were all saying, no, 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 we don't need new laws. What we do need is a properly funded and effective regulator. To enforce the ones we have, yeah. To enforce the ones we have and to provide guidance and support and handle complaints and do all the other things that they do. The 50-odd extra staff that the OAIC are getting, that's, I mean, that's a big jump, um, like 30% increase on the total pool 
I guess, knowing what you know, do you think it's enough? That's a hard question to answer. I think I, I I think it's definitely welcome. You know, they have a huge number of privacy complaints and huge backlog to work through. And they also have a stack of work that's coming out of these breaches, right? Like the general community expectation is that they're going to be up and about and enforcing this stuff. And, you know, if, if Optus or Medibank or Latitude did the wrong thing, leading into these breaches or afterwards that they're going to be out there with a stick kind of telling them off. Um, and that, you know, I mean, 50 people on top of their existing responsibilities, like th- they're not flush, you know, but they, you know, I, th- I think it's definitely welcome. One other thing to bear in mind with the review process is that one of the proposals has been about changing the funding model or introducing this kind of industry-based funding model for the OAIC. So this is the idea that similar to the ACCC, there'd be some sort of levy on, you know, businesses covered by the Privacy Act, and then that would be then used to fund the OAIC. I don't know how that plays into this, whether like the government has confidently increased funding for the forward estimates because they know they're also going to be introducing the mechanism to fund that increase in funding through a levy or not. But um, that's also sort of in the background there. One of the values of a levy is that it takes funding out of political hands to a certain extent it provides a more predictable base funding for the agency one of the things that the government hasn't changed is the oaic's base yearly funding allocations so if you look across the forward estimates that 45 million dollars runs out in a couple years oaic's budget for 26 27 is back down to 24 million dollars if they want to continue that higher staffing level higher level of activity they're going to be reliant on these kind of annual announceable budget measures which puts them vulnerable to the political vagaries of the time and it has to to a certain extent discourage big hard hitting investigations or criticisms of government right because you're going to be going hat in hand to the budget office looking for funding for the next year. So I think what they really need is for that 50 million to be baked in. And one way to do that partially is that kind of industry levy. Also on industry levies and and just amounts, I think comparing to other jurisdictions is an interesting exercise. So just in preparation for this, I had a little look at the UK Information Commissioner's Office's budget didn't have very recent numbers, but in FY21-22, their budget was around £66 million. So that's about $123 Australian dollars. Way more than the OAC, obviously, but they regulate a bunch more people as well, right? So the UK is about 67 million people. Do the maths, that's about $2 per person. If you do that maths in Australia, we've got 26, 25 million people, $2 a person in your the economy you're regulating, if that's the benchmark for the ICO for the UK, that would get you to about 50 million. So on my very rough analysis, right, this recent funding upgrade has put us roughly on par with the UK's regulator, which is you know generally fairly well respected. Okay, so moving on to cyber now, some big announcements on that front as well. $101.6 million over five years from 22-23 to support and uplift cybersecurity in Australia. Uh, So that includes a bunch of things. The largest slice of that is about $46.5 million over four years 
for the establishment of a new coordinator for cybersecurity. So this is, to, you know, a, a new role to ensure coordinated, timely and effective action across government when there are sort of cyber incidents. Yeah, we talked about this a bit back in March when that cyber coordinator role was first announced, you know, to provide a centrally coordinated approach to deliver government cybersecurity responsibilities to lead whole of government coordination and triage of major cyber incidents. This was, I think, an announcement driven or a position driven in part by Claire O'Neill being mad at how unprepared government was to really handle and respond as a whole of government to these really large scale breaches like Optus and Medibank. She had some great interviews at the time where she was just genuinely genuinely really pissed off that her office was like coordinating whole of government response and felt like there should be like machinery in place to deal with that. I think it completely makes sense. We've talked about it before that it's a, it's a necessary role. There's an expectation that government get involved, particularly with, with these large scale breaches and government has value to add, um, you know, both in terms of assistance, but also just to sort of help facilitate, you know, a better response that looks out for, you know, the the affected parties keen to see what i mean that's 46 million and a half million over four years keen to see what that eventually breaks out as like how how this office is set up and what what are the programs and responsibilities that it has yeah for sure next one moving on is 23.4 million in funding over three years for a small business cyber wardens program to be delivered by the Council of Small Business Organisations of Australia? This is a program that's already running. The The Council of Small Business Organisations in Australia have been piloting this for, you know, for about a year in partnership with CBA and Telstra. I think, I mean, one of the things that's probably worth our listeners knowing is that, you know, a lot of larger organisations do have these kind of outreach type programs where they they have an established capability in cybersecurity, you know, a Telstra or a large bank, you would expect them to. They also have this kind of focus of how can we use that capability to help other businesses? And it's not just purely altruistic because a lot of, you know, these larger organizations take on, for example, the losses and the impacts when smaller organizations get breached and, and you know, suffer fraud. So it's in their interest to sort of build that more you know, resilient ecosystem around them. And and so helping kind of other businesses is one way to do that. And it's also a great way to attract business as well. Like if you're a large bank like Commonwealth Bank, if you can add an, a value-add service around helping businesses with their cybersecurity, that's going to help you with your sort of brand and marketing appeal as well. So these programs exist. And in this case, CBA and Telstra are partnered with, you know, the Council of Small Business Organizations in Australia and created this Cyber Wardens program, which essentially is like an e-learning program based around the ACSC's Essential 8, which is like a, a framework that the Australian government have put out of kind of best practices. So you're sort of educating these wardens, if you like, who can then be in their businesses like a fire safety warden, like a, you know, any other kind of safety warden, be someone who has gone through a training program, can kind of then help promote and educate people within their organizations and lift up the ability of their organizations to respond to cybersecurity incidents. I really like the the warden terminology and that analogy to fire wardens or to like first aid officers or, or things like that, that you know, your fire warden doesn't 
do the fire safety design, right? They're not responsible for like making sure the right door is hung and the air flows right or whatever. Their re- their responsibility is like in the moment knowing who to call, you know, general awareness and advice running an internal kind of training or whatever, um, making sure everyone's just like a little bit up to speed. And I feel like there's a whole lot of, especially in small and medium enterprises, there's a whole lot of just low-hanging fruit around cybersecurity that that kind of role can help with, you know, like reminding people about passwords or or awareness or like, you know, putting their hand up when the operating system's really old and they're like, hmm, should we, should we get on this? Should we be updating? Should we be patching? You don't need to be a professional in the field to just start being aware of these little things that organizations can do. The other thing I love about it also is that I feel like in this space, in cyber, we've had a history of like large sums of money announced in budgets and then they go to these you know like we're going to create this new initiative and we're going to try and you know build business awareness or we're going to create a you know a new program to educate people and they try to create things from scratch i feel like in this case they've looked at a program that has already been kind of created by industry is been working reasonably well as a pilot and government have said like let's turbocharge something that's working but make it work at bigger scale with some funding they're not trying to kind of create it from scratch so i think that's that's a good approach and a good lesson because like i was saying before spreading kind of cyber resilience through the economy and helping you know businesses lift their game there's a sort of sentiment around that already within the business community there's large businesses that want to spread knowledge so kind of get in and find ways to sort of boost that and you know there's a real opportunity for kind of improvement for a relatively modest price tag right like we've previously been critical of giant announcements for you know 10 billion dollars on you know australian signals directorate and military hackback high-tech capabilities as opposed to like this dispersed you know just get everybody raising the bar just a little bit so a couple of other cyber announcements one was uh, just under 20 million dollars to keep you know lifting the um security of critical infrastructure assets um you know this has been a focus for a few years now you know we've had new legislation around critical infrastructure so this is just money to help them to to lift to lift their game next one is 12.2 million dollars in the next financial year to sustain the cyber resilience of commonwealth entities currently served by the cyber hubs pilot program it's basically the government equivalent of what we were just talking about with you know cba and big big industry players helping smaller ones right exactly like there's so many platitudes about cybersecurity as a team sport you know cybersecurity is a shared responsibility and these are two initiatives where, you know, we're actually kind of got concrete programs with money behind them to help make that happen. The Cyber Wardens, like you say, is a business version of the big end of town helping the smaller end of town. And, and then you've got the Cyber Hubs, which again is about like you've got bigger government agencies that maybe do, do it well and they can kind of help out the smaller less resourced agencies. There's a real economies of scale thing that goes on in cyber as well, right? Like if you're a large organization, it's very difficult and expensive to stand up these big cyber security capabilities, right? You know, ongoing monitoring and incident response and all of the technical expertise that you need. But once you have that dealing with one more system or, you know, bringing in another another agency's IT or hosting or monitoring one more 
nothing is actually not that, you know, the marginal cost is much more reasonable. You know, this cyber hubs thing is tapping into those economies of scale saying, look, you know, the tax office or, or services Australia, they have these massive IT security teams, just like helping them look after some small 20 person agency or something very low cost for them to do. And it's something that the small agency just doesn't have the scale to do. In some, some of those initiatives, I I felt like there's a real, there's obviously like a really different sort of tonal shift from budgets gone by. Budgets gone by where it was like billions and billions and billions of dollars going to sort of defense projects. It's like, that's the way to sort of solve this problem for Australia. Australia is to really build up defense capability, which is only partially true. The message you kind of get out of this is that, look, we want to improve resilience in the economy. So we want to, you know, we know that businesses need to get better at this. So let's do things like cyber wardens and let's help government take care of their own house as well with things like the cyber hubs. Let's build that resilience, not just expect defense to come in and solve everything for everyone. But then also when it does go wrong, Let's be much more coordinated and prepared as a government to respond through this new coordinator. I just, it's a, it's a better message from a budget than I feel like previous budgets were given. So another uh, announcement that came through the budget was around digital identity. There was about $27 million, just under $27 million um, that is going to expand digital identity. So a lot of that money, you know, more than $20 million of it is going towards actually developing what's called a digital ID ecosystem. Um, and then there's smaller amounts that are sort of going to the OAIC to help the OAIC kind of govern the privacy and security element. Just taking a step back, digital identity is one of those things that people have been talking a lot about for many years, but particularly after the Optus breach. A digital ID is this idea that you you prove your identity to some central party. So say Australia Post or some bank that you use, you know, you've turned up and you've shown them your ID, they've checked your face, they've confirmed and so they then know who you are. And then you might have an app with facial recognition or on your phone or something that you can log into and use Australia Post to vouch for your ID to someone else. So when you go and sign up for a phone from Optus, if you have a digital ID, you don't have to then show them Optus your driver's license. They don't see any of that. You just point them over to Australia Post. Australia Post takes a look through the app, verifies you with some kind of authentication and says, yep, that's Jordan. Don't worry about his ID, we vouch for him. And so it's this way of stopping the problem, one of the main problems with the Optus breach, right, which was they they have to verify ID. So they've got all this ID documents and then you have to send your ID to some other company, the car rental agency or wherever, and everybody's got a copy of your driver's license and it's constantly getting breached. Digital ID is like a way of solving that. And so, you know, this is just increasing momentum behind really solving digital ID. I think it's interesting to see, you know, also the OAIC's role there because digital identity as a system, as you say, is going to make it much better for us from a privacy perspective because we don't have to hand over documents to every service. There's going to be this system that deals with it. So that's obviously, you know, fueling a lot of the funding. But one of the reasons it's 
struggle to get up in the past is because people are actually worried about a centralized digital identity system for privacy reasons. They have fears that uh, this means there's going to be one system that's going to track everything I do. It's going to know, you know, my stuff that I do with agency one, agency two, agency three, and have this kind of centralized view. The funding for the OAIC is probably around like, let's make sure it's privacy preserving in the way it's designed. So that's interesting. That's exactly it. And there's probably a whole episode on this, right? There's various designs measures you put in place to to try to prevent that. But yeah, let's not get into those now. Next category is kind of online safety and scams. There was a pretty significant funding boost for the Office of the E-Safety Commissioner, not unlike the position that the OAIC is often in. They were facing a pretty significant funding cut from the end of June. Almost 50% of their funding wasn't guaranteed after June. So the government in this budget will provide $33 million a year over four years, which is basically quadrupling the um, eSafety Commissioner's kind of ongoing base operational funding. This is what I want them to do with the OASE, give them a substantial boost in their base operational funding. So for the e-safety commissioner, that's gone from 10 million to 42 million a year, uh, which is, yeah, very significant increase. I feel like not as well discussed or exposed this one. Like, I feel like that's a fairly sizable boost to a fairly new agency as well. Like, you know, the e-safety commissioner started only a few years ago as the children's e-safety commissioner now it's the e-safety commission and there's legislation around e-safety online safety bills that are only a couple of years old you know new powers associated with that there's obviously merit in these agencies we want the internet to be you know safe and and you know um nice to use um but they're not without you know criticism either there's rights activist groups that sort of a bit worried about kind of some of the ideas around breaking encryption and you know maybe overly loose takedown rules i thought that you know like the quadrupling i think maybe deserved a little bit more scrutiny and and attention and and i think we've talked about maybe doing a little bit more of a deep dive into e-safety generally but it's, it's interesting it's reflective of what we're seeing globally as well we're seeing kind of online safety bills being introduced in other countries as well australia's been one of the leaders in e-safety generally. I'm pretty sure we were the first country globally to have a dedicated e-safety function. And yeah, they do some amazing work around like particularly um, outreach and support their complaints process for, you know, online abuse or non-consensual sharing of intimate images. You know, they, they have really great powers um, and can be often very effective at supporting people through takedowns and, and stuff like that when bad stuff is happening to them online. But yes, like you say, there is always a tension there between the safety people and the privacy people, particularly around encryption and, you know, what the platforms can see and do. So again, probably another episode all on its own. So then, yeah, you mentioned scams. So there was $87 million announced in the budget for a new national anti-scam center. So this center would have takedown functions for, you know, investor scams and SMS sender registries to stop fraudsters um, acting like government agencies. Um, the scam center is going to be based out of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, um, and it will also facilitate things like data sharing on scams across government and the private sector. So you can kind of have that, you know, collective knowledge and shut down scams. One of my gripes around scam and anti-scam work has been that too much of the focus is on kind of consumer awareness and educating people not to fall from the scam for the scam rather than like preventing it from happening in the first place. You know. 
none of them are new ideas that National Anti-Scam Centre or the SMS Sender Registry, you know, they've been being discussed for a little while now, but they're really starting to push back into designing controls that prevent me from getting the message in the first place. So that SMS Sender Registry is a good one too. The idea is that it'll make it harder to spoof the name or the number that an SMS comes from. Right now it's possible for a scammer to send me a message that looks like it's from Australia Post, even to the point where my phone will put it in the same thread as legitimate OzPost parcel messages. It's things like that that like, don't tell me not to click on that. That's a very reasonable thing to assume it comes from OzPost. The solution there is not to educate people to check the URL. The solution there is to stop it from happening in the first place. And so these two are projects that'll push in that direction, which I like. It's reflective, I think, also broader things that industry are doing as well. So there's been, we've, heard about in recent months partnerships by organizations like Combank and Telstra, so, so sort of sharing information so that they can block financial transactions based on things that Telstra knows, so that you know they can that they're leading indicators of a of a scam. You know, someone's on the phone um, as they're making this transaction, and it's not actually the bank. So you know that's probably a scam. That kind of thing. I agree with you. I think the impost on individuals to be able to detect scams as they get even more sophisticated is. is becoming a bit unfair and i think there's ways that we can try to stop some of these things um look that's that's where we're running long um that's basically it there were a couple announcements around consumer data right funding and ai funding as well but we won't dig into that phew that was a lot it was a lot but yeah good vibes i think on most fronts you know like we've seen continuation of developments over the last few years of sort of pushing privacy and cyber in the right direction and it was reflected in the budget i think yeah good vibes you know they're not crazy amounts of money which is like to be expected in you know current economic times and fiscal responsibility and whatnot but all of those announcements i think are moving in the right direction or so yeah positive good good marks for that privacy cyber budget all right well um Good chat. Thank you for that. And uh, yeah, look forward to doing it again next time. Talk to you again next week. There you go. See ya.